Indeed, Williams... Uh, Williams? That's just my husband's name. Indeed, William... Ch oh, for fuck's sake. Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 171 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and uh, I think I think I might enjoy watching cricket. I don't know what to say to you. I like cricket. Oh my God, both of them. <laughs> I mostly only like one day cricket. Yeah. Because that's about the level of concentration I have for it. But somebody once explained it to me, actually took the time to explain cricket. It's one of those sports a bit like American football, where a lot of it is in the tactic rather than in the actual performance, if that makes sense. Mm, apparently it's very psychological. And it's when you take a new ball and stuff like that all really matters. So it's kind of got that element of it's a little bit like chess as well as being a sport. Yeah. So yeah, I like cricket. It helps that I watched my friend Sam get 112 cricket ball points. Yes. <laughs> That's great. Well done, Sam. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I've done my spring bulbs. Who were misses? What have you planted? Some daffodils, some alliums, some mini alliums, and some fructus. Are they not aluminiums? Aluminiums. Aluminiums. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They missed a trick market in that, didn't they? They did. I'm, I'm available if they want to get in touch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Jenilford, and I regret being so risk averse when it comes to gambling. And related to that point, congratulations, Emma Raducanu. I mean, incredible scenes. Did yeah. you watch it? I saw bits of it. I, I've seen bits of it subsequently. Like highlights. She looks like she enjoys playing tennis and uh, I'm here for it. It's lovely, lovely stuff. Yeah. I was a little bit disappointed by how politicised her victory became yesterday and it kind of takes the, the glory off her a little bit. Twitter forces it through the, the, the talking point mill and comes out with a, a thing and I think the thing should have been well done fantastic. Well, it was it's quite interesting actually. A friend of mine tweeted yesterday something like congratulations to everyone who's made Emma Raducanu winning about about them because loads of people yeah. did it in like different ways. It was really interesting and uh, actually someone else I know who I follow on Twitter is a bit like it's not really the gotcha you might think it is saying uh oh she's an immigrant oh do you like him like also this is not that unusual you know greg rosetsky joe conta like you know it's not actually that unusual for but yeah sorry i'm waffling he said it's not really the gotcha you think it is because it also kind of sets up this narrative that you have to do something like exceptional in order to be accepted yeah like we don't have to be fucking grand slam winners Oh, yeah, I mean, I get that and I agree with okay. that, but I still think she should have had a day where it was just about her before everybody made it about politics. I agree. Congratulations. You've done an amazing thing. Give you're fucking 18. wild card and you're 18. I like... know, let's not talk about wild cards since I always put money on wild cards and I didn't fucking do it this time. Oh, yeah, well, I, I didn't foresee this eventuality. So, yeah. In last week's Jenny Off the Blocks, I said I'd be surprised if she beat. Belinda Bencic because that she hadn't had to play that many difficult matches. So sorry, I w I got it wrong in last week's journey off the blocks. I forgive you. Thanks, mate. I don't. I it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's Sexual Health Week. Ooh. Ooh. Ooh, there we go. That's the correct response. So I've been on the Zoom for a safe and consensual conversation with Lisa Hallgarten from Brook. One of the things we talked about, Jen was talking to your kids about sexual health. So there's something for you to look forward to. I look forward to that. Doesn't it fill you with horror? 
No, I just think you've got to try and be as vaguely normal about these things as you possibly can, and that's probably the best way for it not to all go horribly wrong. <laughs> In Jenny Off the Blocks, I talked to Paralympic athlete Libby Clegg about her new book, My Life with Hattie. And your complete attention, as rated or dated, does a cinematic colossus, 1941's Citizen Kane. But first, winter is coming. Again, it's time for the Bush <laughs> Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where the good news is North Korea's been testing missiles again. I was going to say what a bombshell to start with, but that, that <laughs> seems in poor taste. Anyway, let's move on from the good news. <laughs> Mick, genuine question. Uh-huh. Do you know what the current rules are around COVID isolation and quarantining after a holiday abroad? I recognise all of those words, but I know that wasn't the question. No, me either. Nor does anyone else, apparently. Oh, good. Because it was reported that a mere 300,000 people were suspected of having broken said quarantine rules, whatever they may have been at the time, as they arrived in the UK between March and May this year. So, you know, as the then new Delta variant was handing us our collective arse on a plate. Mm, Not ideal. Not really. So bad luck for them because their details have been handed over to the authorities. The authorities? The authorities. That's if they could actually be traced and we don't know how many of them that is because the government wouldn't say in any way, let's face it, the authorities have got a fair bit on at the moment, haven't they? Uh Yeah. Yeah. Although presumably not tracing any new rule breakers because the current rules are that there are no rules is that right i mean quarantine club jen are we even supposed to be talking about this well (laughs) it's a good question (laughs) rule number one about quarantine club is no one fucking knows what it is is it going to turn out just to be meatloaf in a room of my imagination i hope so that'd be great wouldn't it Anyway, well, so there being rules or not being rules, who fucking knows? That may or may not continue to be the case again. Who knows? As Boris Johnson was preparing to announce his winter COVID plan as we recorded this on Monday. That's coming on Tuesday, yesterday to you, tomorrow to me and Mick. So by the time you're listening, you'll have more details. Probably. (laughs) But let's be honest, he's most likely going to call COVID piffle and say something a bit racist. Or impregnate someone. Statistically speaking, that is genuinely more likely (laughs) than him having a coherent or useful policy on anything. Facts. Absolute facts there. What we do know from what's been leaked to the press by number 10 ahead of this announcement, because that's what they like to do. That's how it works these days, isn't it? Absolutely, is that Johnson is unlikely to implement any kind of lockdown measures if shit gets real again. Sajid Javid also took a break from comparing the evils of inefficient use of public money and not being a racist on Sunday, I'll come back to that in a minute, to announce that plans for hugely unpopular vaccine passports for entry to large public events have been scrapped in England. Mm -hmm. Did you hear that? He said he's going to make sure there's no wasted or wokery in the in the NHS the other day. I'm glad he's got his priorities straight. Oh, no, he can just get in a fucking bin. <laughs> he's the worst person. He's not oh, even no, the worst person. No. He's not. Can you powder drive for that, Jen? So is shit likely to get real again? I don't have a definitive answer on that, I'm afraid. Though the government's chief medical officers seem to be saying this morning that children aged 12 to 15 should be getting jabbed pronto 
Also, at the time of recording, the seven-day average for new COVID cases in the UK was 35,450, dropping slightly in the last few days. So the seven-day average for COVID deaths was 139, which is rising slightly. I'm going to throw it out there. 35,000 new daily cases is still quite a lot. Absolutely, yeah. 139 deaths a day is also still quite a lot. I asked Gary the other day, not like in a playful game, but I was like, how many COVID deaths do you think there were today? And he went, four? And I went, 174, mate. And he was like, wow, we're kind of blind to it, which is so dangerous, isn't it? I mean... I've had both my COVID jabs, not want to show off, right? But like, you know, I urge anyone listening who can, but has not for whatever reason already had theirs to crack on because all the hallmarks point to a winter shitstorm are coming. And I am actually this Saturday paying money to get a flu jab as well this winter. I think it makes sense. I think flu's going to be like, so I gave you last winter. (laughs) It's my time to shine. Right. (laughs) What have we got on? So, as Jen's just hinted, there is a real MC Escher quality to the Tory cabinet in that every time you think you've reached the bottom, such as Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab bodyboarding in Greece while Afghanistan falls, there's more bottom, such as Education Secretary Gavin Williamson stating he'd met Marcus Rashford when actually he'd met Mararo Toji, before going on to slag off a picture of Her Majesty. I mean, at least he's an equal opportunity to fuckwit. And still there is yet more bottom to find. Hello there, Work and Pension Secretary Therese Kofi, who seemingly has more accents in her name than moral fibres in her body. And like Rob, who was surprised to discover the UK is an island, and Williamson, who was surprised to discover that kids not being able to go to school because of the pandemic might have an adverse effect on their exam results, Kofi appears to be pig ignorant, pignorant, about the job she is paid a shed load more than minimum wage to do. Speaking today, Monday the 13th of September on BBC Breakfast, about the scrapping of the so-called £20 weekly uplift to universal credit, Kofi wore her pignorance plainly, announcing herself as entirely happy with the cut (laughs) and saying £20 a week is about two hours extra work every week. We will be seeing what we can do to help people perhaps secure those extra hours. Bollocks, pal absolute bollocks what you fail to do there is to take into account your own system's taper rate which snatches back many people's benefits at the rate of 63 pence for every extra quid they earn and that's before we get to factoring in tax the newly hyped national insurance transport and ring that bell once again jen Childcare. Mm. Now, that last one is particularly huge and backed up by a recent survey that revealed tens of thousands of working parents say the government is failing them with inadequate childcare policies that leave them financially crippled, stymied in their careers and desperate for radical change. Uh, how's that surprise face, Jen? I mean, I pay for it, so I know that it's really fucking expensive. Yeah. Surprise face, unnecessary. Put it back in its box. Back to the universal credit cut, which means, according to one benefits expert, plenty of people not granted what's termed a work allowance by the benefits system is going to be hit by punishing maths. So if they earn £200 a week, they have to earn £67 a week more to make up for the £20 loss. And for someone currently not working at all, the figure is £54. So who's on universal credit? Well, about 40% of people who depend on universal credit are in work and trying their best in really dire circumstances. 
Many people unable to work because of ill health or disability have been put on universal credit instead of like benefits equivalent to what's actually happened to them. The cut will hit six in every ten single parent families. For the under 25s who already receive less universal credit than older people, um, just because, the loss of money will make lives that are already really fucking tough almost impossible. So up at the top there, I called Kofi's comments ignorance. In fact, I think it's arrogance. I think it's open contempt. And that is the one thing that this government excels at. I've got to say about the childcare stuff. Someone had tweeted that like she doesn't have children, but she understands that childcare is one of the biggest issues in terms of feminism and in terms of class, right? And that, I think that's really hard to argue with. Certainly in the West, absolutely. Yeah, because it is making lots of women not be able to do their jobs and it's making kids poor and it's it's making kids grow up in poverty. You know, Mickey, you don't have kids, but you understand that kids that currently exist will become doctors and, yeah. you know, whatever else, the people who you need in the world to exist. And those people who are going to become those things are probably the people whose fucking parents can afford to pay for their early years education. And actually, like, it's it's such a huge, huge, huge problem. The thing about childcare is it's infrastructure. Like, actually, childcare is infrastructure and the government doesn't see it as that. And of course it is, because everything else ceases to work if that thing isn't taken care of. Exactly that, but it's women who do the majority of childcare yeah. and we're a sexist system. Free childcare has been one of the seven tenets of feminism since the second wave. It's the thing that could make everything else fall like a deck of cards, which is why it probably isn't put into place. Yeah, and the other thing, do you remember I interviewed Professor Linda Scott before I went on maternity leave about economy, yeah. yeah the double X economy? And so you think about it, like there's so many reasons why free childcare is better for society, or even just affordable childcare is better for society. Mm -hmm. Like not only it's not just about like you can go to work, therefore you're paying some taxes the skills that the world loses through these women who were working who now can't do it anymore because they have to give it up to look after their children it's insane to me like it's so obvious and i genuinely believe i've said this before and i'll say it again because it's not like other governments haven't had the opportunity to make this better i don't think any of the main parties have any interest in fixing this problem at this stage i genuinely don't think they do so Keir Starmer, come along, prove me wrong, fucking do something. Get off your fucking ass and do something. None of the parties have women's needs and lives as any sort of priority, Jen. So, yeah, I mean, I hope he hears you and does something, but I have a He'll feeling we're going to be sure. waiting. I mean, he's, he's a big fan <laughs> of the show. <laughs> Sorry, um, ranting. Mick, would you like some good news? Ah, uh, go on then. I think there's a little bit of room, unless it's about more North Korea nuclear missiles. No, it's actually proper good news. Okay, good. The NHS has launched the world's largest trial of an advanced blood test that could detect more than 50 types of cancer, including of the lung, bowel and pancreas, before symptoms appear. That is genuinely bona fide crack-on good news. 
It is, isn't it? Uh-huh. Of course, we all know that the key to successful cancer treatment is spotting it early. And previous research on the Galeri test, which is already available in the US, found that it picked up on 67% of a dozen pre-specified cancers, which account for around two-thirds of all cancer deaths in the UK and the US, according to The Guardian. And the NHS is now writing to 140,000 people aged between 50 and 77 to invite them to take part in said trial. So if you or someone you know receives a letter, I would massively encourage you or them to reply to it. Seconded. Yes. Get writing. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we check in on whether the Taliban has kept its promise to be less cunty when it comes to women. I'm paraphrasing here, but it's pretty close. I should explain that I'm not being glib about the horrors faced by those living under the Taliban and indeed those trying to escape the Taliban, but I just don't always have the words to express how fucking miserable and horrible and all the time all of this is. Mm. So women's rights in Afghanistan were sharply curtailed under the Taliban's 1996 to 2001 rule when women were barred from almost all work and education and basically invisible in public life. But since returning to power last month, the Taliban has claimed they will implement a less extreme rule. And they said that as they immediately set about painting over images of women. So how do we think that's working out? Jen, uh, back to your surprised face. Yeah, you, you don't need it. Those promises to respect women's rights to work and education came with the caveat of them being within an Islamic framework, uh, which the Taliban did refuse to define. And so far, there are no women in the official government. Women have been banned from playing sport. Universities have been strictly segregated by sex. And women, both students and teachers, must wear an abaya and a niqab. Look, I'm basically just reminding you, dear listeners, that this is happening because when the whole world feels like a bin fire, it can be really tricky to tell who's being most badly burned. And as the Taliban increases its power and Afghan women are erased more and more, it's going to be even harder to determine the truth. Already messages are muddled. So it's up to us to work harder and to not abandon the women of Afghanistan. Now, I threw a bit of cash at Rukshana Media, a group of women reporters from and in Afghanistan who are doing incredible work on the ground there. And you can follow them at Rukshana Media, which is R-U-K-H-S-H-A-N-A Media. And also, in fairness, The Guardian is doing some great reporting on this. Hi, Hannah here. We find ourselves in Sexual Health Week. And who better for me to be chatting to? Then Lisa Hulgarten from Brooke. Thank you ever so much for joining us. Oh, lovely to be here. Now, I'm guessing most of our listeners will have heard of Brooke. But for anyone who hasn't, could you just give us a little reminder of who you are, what your mission is? Brooke is a sexual health and wellbeing charity primarily focused on young people. And back in 1964, we were the first organisation to provide contraception to unmarried women. So we were groundbreaking in that sense. And we've carried on with a real commitment to young people and young people's sexual health ever since. We have a sort of life course approach, which means that we think that you have to set the foundations right at the beginning for young people to have good sexual and reproductive health throughout their lives by having great information and education. So we've lobbied really hard for good relationships and sex education. And it's something we also provide. We have clinics for young people 
to deal with their sexual and reproductive health issues. And we are experts in supporting vulnerable young people and encouraging young people to feel confident, to seek help when they need it, to develop their agency and decision-making skills so that they can transition into adult life and hopefully a really good sexually healthy long life ahead of them. When I was prepping for this interview, I was thinking many years ago, because I'm 47, so 30 years ago, a friend of mine asked me to go with her to a sexual health clinic. They, they used to be called GUM clinics. I don't know if they're still called that because she was concerned about something. And my mum worked in the health service. So it actually didn't occur to me until I got in there that someone in there might know me. Mm. And when mm. I did get in there, someone knew me and said hello to me. And I was so horrified at the thought that I had been seen and someone would tell my mum. I mean, obviously they couldn't. I immediately said... I'm not here for me. And I was thinking about that a lot because I was thinking about how how I perceived their judgment of me for being there, which they wouldn't have done because they were a professional. I then immediately shifted onto my friend, which was actually a pretty unhelpful and unpleasant thing to do, I think. (laughs) And now, obviously, as an adult, that wouldn't have happened. But that was about being 17. It was about being raised a Catholic. It was about a lot of things. I think it's really normal. And in fact, one of the reasons some young people choose to come to our clinics is because they're really scared if they go to their GP, that somebody will tell their mum or the receptionist will recognise them and say, oh, say to somebody, oh, your niece was in here the other day. In fact, obviously, health workers, all health workers in any health setting are obliged to maintain confidentiality. But that fear is really real. And that's why sometimes young people like to go to places other than their GP Mm. to get sexual and reproductive health care. But people who work in gum clinics, GUM clinics, sexual health clinics, reproductive health clinics, whatever you want to call them, are probably the most alert to those feelings of anxiety and are absolutely clear about their maintenance of confidentiality. That's something we try to get across to young people all the time and something that they, they find hard to believe that they have the right to confidentiality. So it's a really important part of the education that we do, yeah. encouraging them to feel confident talking to medical professionals. Now, I keep reading that young people are having way less sex than previous generations in fact going back as far as my grandparents generation would be sort of the last time that that there was this little sex amongst young people but I wonder if you could tell me how true that is and why you think that might be if it is indeed true. There's been a big reduction in teenage pregnancy rates which has been something that's been a kind of consistent aim of health services and education services over the last sort of 20 years and people sometimes point to that and say look No one's having sex anymore. They're all sitting on their phones. They're all relating to each other through digital media and social media, and they're not actually touching each other. But actually, 15 to 24-year-olds are one of the highest risk groups for sexually transmitted infections. Their rates of sexually transmitted infections, not this year. There's been a, in the last sort of year because of lockdown, there's been a change. But overall, those rates have been high and sometimes increasing. So I don't think there's really evidence that young people are not having sex Sometimes there's a sort of tabloid thing, isn't there, which is like, all the young people are having sex and it's really terrible. And now there's a kind of, none of the young people are having sex. They're just sending each other naked photos on their phones. And isn't it terrible? And there, there is a sense in which young people, their own voices are being missed out of some of those debates. So Yeah, I think as well, because, and I think this is a verifiable fact, young people are drinking less than they used to. There's a tendency to sort of make them seem really po-faced, make them seem like these young people, they don't even know how to enjoy themselves. They're not getting drunk. They're not having casual sex. Like you say, things that I was constantly told off for doing. Yeah. 
you say there's been a fall in lockdown. I'm guessing some of that will be due to potentially opportunity, especially if you're young and you're living with your parents and perhaps lockdown is more strictly enforced in your house. But I'm guessing there must be a worry that some of that is people who aren't coming forward with problems in the same way that people haven't been coming forward with a lot of other health problems during the pandemic. I think that's definitely something we're looking at. Public Health England put statistics out yesterday about the 2020 STI rates and diagnosis. And definitely there's been a fall across all the different STIs and also the different groups and ages. And there is a bit of thinking to do and a bit more to understand about how much of that is to do with people having less sex or having fewer partners and how much of that is to do with people not accessing healthcare. So it's a really good question. I mean, from our point of view, we did transition to a kind of telemedicine digital provision really, really quickly in lockdown. And one of the things that lockdown has done in terms of sexual health has sort of pushed forward something that was happening anyway. There was a a big move towards doing as much online as you possibly can. So people ordering STI tests online and ordering, for example, pills via repeat prescriptions and stuff Mm. online or through telemedicine. Um, And really that got pushed at lockdown. And I know that our services very, very quickly moved to that sort of model. So we tried to make it as accessible as possible. I don't think we know yet, and I don't think anyone knows yet, how many people were still having sex but not accessing the services. And I think certainly in terms of STIs, that will sort of start to become apparent as this year goes on. And we see whether there was a lot of kind of undiagnosed, untreated STI in the population. Okay, so here's another question based on something that, again, now a commonly held belief. And that's the one of the most worrying age groups regarding sexually transmitted diseases isn't young people, because you're doing a good job reaching young people. It's newly single people who are older and haven't had to think about this sort of thing very much. Is that something you're saying? Yeah, I mean, I think that's something over the last 10 years or so, there's been a concern about people coming out of long-term relationships where their primary concern might have been about preventing pregnancy and suddenly having a new partner or multiple new partners and being a group that hadn't really ever been targeted. I mean, if you think about kind of heterosexual women in their 40s or 50s had never really been targeted with public health information about STIs. So definitely that's something that health services are acutely aware of. If you've been in a very long-term monogamous relationship, you might not have been worried about STIs. So that's definitely a group of concern. And I think one of the things that is another thing for that group is that it's not necessarily that easy now to get long-acting reversible contraceptive methods that they might want to access. That's something that's been exacerbated by lockdown there's a massive backlog for people who want methods like the IUS and the IUD and the implant because they are face-to-face services you can't you can't send one to somebody in the post um they have (laughs) (laughs) let's not even go there um you definitely have to go and see a health professional to have one fitted and of course there was already a lot of difficulty in some areas with accessing them and um lockdowns made that much harder so yeah that might be something that also affects women who hadn't really been sexually active for a while and are now going back in, into the sort of relationship field. Your theme this year is consent, which is evergreen topic. What message are you trying to get across here? The actual strap line is consent, do you get it? Which has got a lovely little double entendre yeah. in there. And I think one of the issues that's come up this year again and again has been around young people and their experience of sexual abuse, sexual harassment 
and sexual violence in schools and in colleges and between and amongst peers of the same age. And so it just felt like a really timely moment to start emphasising kind of messages around consent, get people to think about, do they get it? Do they understand what it means? But also, do they get it? Do they ask for consent in relationships? Are they asked for consent in relationships? So I think the message that we're trying to get across this week in Sexual Health Week is that consent is the absolute cornerstone and foundation of any healthy relationship. And consent is not a one-off. Consent is a kind of constantly negotiated, communicated conversation. And it's not only is it about the law, and I think sometimes we get very hung up on strictly what's legal and what's not legal, but it's also about what's ethical and it's about what's pleasurable. Mm. And it feels really important to us that people understand that asking for some consent and having conversations about consent isn't some sort of obstacle to having a really spontaneous, lovely sexual relationship. It's actually going to make everyone feel much more safe, much more comfortable and have a much more pleasurable time. And obviously there's a spectrum from sexual assault on one end, which a frightening number of young people primarily young women, but not exclusively, are experiencing right through to consent being something that we talk about in terms of, you know, how you navigate boundaries in a relationship and how you sort of talk about sex in a way that's fun and pleasurable and ensure that everybody's sort of on board at every point. So in a way, it's a really good theme for Brooke because it sort of captures what Brooke does very well, which is, I think, deal with people in the most vulnerable situations who have experienced sexual exploitation, who have experienced abuse, who are very vulnerable, and talking to them about those very, very serious issues, right through to talking to people of all ages about sex positivity and how to have a really nice, enjoyable relationship in a very upbeat way. And we do cover that whole spectrum. And I think consent and the issues around consent cover that whole spectrum. Some listeners might have noticed is an advertising campaign. They might have seen some adverts on bus stops and other places for stop cyber flashing, which is part of our mm. sexual health week. And we've got quite an eye-catching campaign around this, but it's actually a really serious issue because absolutely thousands of people every day are receiving unsolicited nudes. Now, for under 18s, it's completely illegal to send, receive a nude or for anyone to send a nude of somebody who's under 18. And that's relatively clear. It still happens. And we would say the worst thing that can happen around that is that it's not asked for. It causes distress. It causes annoyance and upset. But it's clear that it's illegal and there are ways to report it. If people are over 18 even though in real life it would be completely illegal to be flashed at by somebody in the street, they can send you pictures of their body parts with no consequences whatsoever. And again, some people find that really, really distressing. You know, people can dismiss it as just being a bit ugh or a bit stupid or a bit Mm. annoying or a bit invasive. But certainly when people are sent a nude when they're in a public place and they don't know who's sending it, that can actually be really intimidating. Yeah like an evolution of the time when you were younger and you would answer the phone and there would be someone there saying you know filthy stuff down the phone at you which Mm. used to happen sort of in the old landline days I mean young women report getting sent them so much so often they talk about it as being a kind of normal part of their life annoying and upsetting that's really sad and they're also constantly being asked to send nudes by people who they may or may not be in a relationship with and that being asked to send a nude is also a normal part of young people's lives now. You do get this sort of backlash 
two conversations about consent that goes along the lines of, well, you know, do you have to sit down and, and write a full contract? The legal stuff is something that, I mean, lots of people don't know about, that you can't really give consent if you are inebriated mm. or under the influence of drugs and alcohol. And that's, I mean, that's a really tricky one because a lot of people would say, well, that is when you know, that is when I fancy someone or that is when I feel less inhibited and I do choose to have sex. So it's it's complicated, but I think it's important that, that people know that because it might make people think a bit more carefully about how they ask. Do people have to sit down and write a, an essay and <laughs> sign it at the end? I don't think they do. Um, but it is about saying consent is more than somebody not saying no. You know, as a bottom line, it's not enough to say, well, they never said no. It's really important. We talk about enthusiastic consent. Mm. It's really important that you are aware of body language. You're listening to verbal clues and you're asking little things. And it's not about things like, is it now okay if I put my hand in this place? It's about saying, are you enjoying it? Is this nice? Do you want me to do this more? Do you want me to do this less? I think it's about increasing people's kind of confidence and communication skills and making that quite a fluid thing and I think for a lot of people they could end up engaging in nicer times than they would if it was just a matter of like you say yes at the beginning of the evening and whatever happens after that there's no going back Mm. on it we really want people to understand it's really iterative there might be a point where you felt really comfortable and now there's a point where you don't feel so comfortable or you're not enjoying the particular activity. And it's really important that people can kind of go, oh, that was really lovely. but I've sort of had enough now and I need to go to sleep or that's really nice. But I don't really like it when you do that bit. I like it when you do that bit. Giving people the tools to do that, giving them permission to do that, not only permission to do that, but saying, actually, we really recommend you have those kind of conversations, I think is really good. You offer a terrific service to young people, but somebody else who obviously could be helping young girls with this is mums and a lot of our listeners will be mums of young girls and young boys which is equally important to talk to them in this scenario about consent but I know from talking to some of my friends that talking to your kids about sex isn't the easiest thing in the world how would you advise mums to go about doing this? Well, Brooke does quite a lot of work with parents. We do workshops with parents and we've got lots of kind of online workshops called RSE at home, which I think are all up. And I would recommend that parents go and have a look at them, which they're kind of Q&A sessions, which deal with a particular topic each time. I know it's difficult. One of the reasons it's difficult is because most people who are parents now had either no or really terrible sex education. Mm -hmm. So we weren't really given the vocabulary. We don't have a model of how you talk to young people about sex and relationships. And we're very sympathetic to that. So there's not a sense in which we feel that parents are sort of doing a bad job. We're all kind of muddling through. I think in the public narrative around sex education parents are often seen as gatekeepers of information they're seen as people who don't want to give information who want to protect their children and are kind of quite closing them off from experiences and I don't think that's actually true I think that most people who now have teenage kids had sex before marriage might have had multiple partners certainly have got more liberal ideas about sex than our parents and grandparents did so I think it's really important we don't assume that parents are stuffy and not interested in doing this I think they're really interested in doing this they just need help there's loads of great books out there you know from picture books to start talking to your kind of three or four year old right through to books about how to talk to your adolescents about sex and relationships I think there's definitely resistance 
from children as well. They don't necessarily want their parents to be their primary educators, mm. which is, again, this is something that government talks about a lot and that people talk about a lot, that parents are the primary educators of their children. And actually, children don't always want to hear it from their parents. But it's great if you can make it clear that you are there for them if they do want to talk to you. And it's brilliant if you watch films and television together and you can start a conversation about what you're seeing on television. Like, God, do you think that he's treating her well? Or I think that she's really up for this. What do you think? Or why are they representing this woman as being like this? And why are they in the same way that you would talk to your children about violence on television? You know, when they're four, you would say, you do know that if you hit somebody over the head with a hammer, they're not going to just spring up again. <laughs> you, know, mm. you do know you can't do that. We can start talking to our children about consent from a really early age, you know, from the moment that they're talking and walking and crawling and borrowing each other's toys and pushing each other over and all those sort of things and being asked to kiss you or all, you know, those are all opportunities for conversation. You can start those conversations so that all that stuff becomes really normalised. And with your teenagers... You can say, like, here's some great books. These are good websites. I mean, one of the problems with people just Googling sexual terms is that they're very likely to just come across sexual imagery or pornography, which might be what they were looking for, but might well not be what they were looking Mm. for. So if parents can do a bit of that work first, I mean, Brooke's got loads of great resources, but there's loads of really good websites out there. There's some fantastic influencers on Instagram who do brilliant, very sex positive, very consent focused posts. If you can do a bit of that work first and then say, I've seen this really great post, you might be interested in this person or you might be interested in this website. So there's something about just keeping those conversations going. There isn't a moment to have the conversation. Parents who think they have to have the conversation (laughs) are A, setting themselves up for a really kind of stressful preparation, but also they're not going to pick the right moment for that. It's the young people who are going to pick the moments they want. And one of the things that I've often heard people say from youth workers and social workers and people is that the best conversations they have with young people about things that are quite personal and intimate and difficult are when they're driving them somewhere. There's something about sitting next to somebody and not having face-to-face contact, which can be a really good moment. But I think there's something about being opportunistic, saying it often, acknowledging the fact it might be embarrassing for them, but you don't really mind being really clear that you're there to talk about it at any point and just yeah using opportunities that come when something happens in the news when something happens on a soap opera I know it's harder now because people are glued to their own screens but I do think that actually watching things together is really a good way of sort of getting conversations going. Where can people find out more about Brooke? We've got a website which is absolutely packed full of really good accurate scientifically accurate information about sex sexual health reproductive health that's www.brook.org.uk and we are also at brook underscore sex positive on instagram and constantly putting out really engaging information so uh we'd really love people to look at that and join in conversations brilliant thank you so much for your help lisa this has been really interesting it's been really nice to talk to you happy sexual health week everyone and keep getting consent Thanks for listening. Do you know what is super helpful? It is super helpful if you pop over to iTunes and rate and review us. Oh, and while you're there, if you're not already subscribed, do that too. Thanks very much. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks.
I'm joined by power athletes Libby Clegg and author of the new book, My Life with Hattie, Six Years with a Dog Who Does Everything. So Libby, you've joined me today to talk to me about said book. But first of all, I just wanted to say congratulations because you've just come back from the Tokyo Paralympics where you have notched up another medal for yourself. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, no, I'm very glad to be home. The medal was in the 4 yeah. by 100 metre relay. Is that a new event for you? It is a new event for me. Um, it's the first time that we've had a universal relay, actually, in the Paralympics. Oh. Yeah, it's it's amazing to be a part of it. Why don't you tell us, first of all, then, Libby, a little bit about the book. You suffer from a condition called Stargardt's disease, which is a genetic condition that causes a deterioration of sight over a period of time. I won't completely lose my sight. I'll always have like a little bit, but it, it gets to the point where it's quite bad. Like it's obviously pretty bad. And yeah, I'm quite lucky as well. The way my eye condition is, um, it's like really colourful. Um, <laughs> so even when it's getting bad, it still looks really nice. Um, I read so this I'm in your book. Fortunate. You said it's like a kaleidoscope. Yeah, that's literally like the easiest way to describe it, like a kaleidoscope. So yeah, I can't, I can't complain, to be honest. So I, I got diagnosed with my condition when I was nine. Mm-hmm. And basically, you know, you get told that you're disabled. And for me, I just thought disabled people were people in wheelchairs. <laughs> I didn't realise there was a whole spectrum of, of disability. It's basically a bit about, a little bit about my childhood and my background. And then me making the decision to apply for a guide dog, which was quite a big, big deal for me because I'm stubborn, fiercely independent. And I really felt like having a guide dog would be like a bit of hindrance to my life. <laughs> and in fact, it's been the complete opposite. So it's it's a bit about that. And, you know, Hattie is like, I would describe her a bit sometimes a bit like Eeyore. So she can be like a bit she comes across as a bit mopey sometimes but it's very manipulative uh, <laughs> it's just so stroker so it's just about some of the adventures and the journeys that we've been on over the years so Hattie's been part of your journey as it were over the years which has included quite a few medals now at various Paralympics so you started in <laughs> Beijing in 2008 you've been to London Rio and now Tokyo and you have picked up along the way silver medals at Beijing, London and Tokyo mm. and two gold medals at Rio. So that's that's not bad going. I mean, I guess I, I would imagine that the golds, but, but you know, what, what's been the highlight for you? you know, the highlight of my career, actually, what I would say is actually this Games in Tokyo. I knew going into this Games that my I've got really bad Achilles, basically, and it's it's packed in, it's decided it doesn't want to, doesn't want to work anymore. And for me, obviously, most of my uh, life as an athlete is always on about what the next competition is. It's all about your performance. It's not really about much else. It's it's quite boring, really. And it's very focused on that one thing. And the past five years for me has been a bit of a roller coaster. I've had lots of ups and downs. And just the fact that we won a medal on the relay and I did, got to do it as a part of a team athletics is very individual sport and to be a part of a team was just amazing so it's my last I've retired now so it's my last Paralympic medal on the track and it was two of my teammates in the relay it was their very first Paralympic medal so it was really nice to sort of be a part of that as well with them so that that is actually my proudest moment Prior to Rio, you actually lost your funding, didn't you? And you put your own team together without funding, which is, I mean, for a start, incredible. And I wondered how how you managed to do that. And also, how 
did it feel to lose your funding at that point? Because you talk about confidence being a, this sort of sixth sense almost in the book. And I wondered, you know, is that something that, that powered you through? Because that's a really, that's, that's no mean feat to put your own team together. No, I mean, it was very difficult. Um, I found out that I was off funding and basically all the staff that I'd worked with for many years had basically stopped talking to me and it was it was like I was going to a job that had been sacked from every day it was it was really rubbish because I still had to go and train at the track and I would see these people but they just didn't want to talk to me and it was really difficult um, because when you get taken off funding you're basically being told that you know no one believes in you basically so I ended up having a chat with my coach at the time and I just said look like I've got eight or nine months let's just give it everything if it happens it happens like if even if I get selected for a games, that'd be great. And if I don't, you know, it's not the end of the world. At least I know I've done my best. I just was quite selective about who I worked with and made sure that they actually were invested in working with me. And, you know, when, when you put into people like my massage therapist and my coach, Joe, you get a lot back because you're not just taking all the time. It's, it's a two way relationship and. You know, they, they want you to succeed and support you. For me, it was the best thing that ever happened to me being taken off funding because it just made me learn accountability and take responsibility for my own actions and made me realise that I really, really wanted to succeed and win in Rio. So, I mean, you, you came back from that, which is also incredible. And then you did obviously go to Rio and you won two gold medals, which is also, you yeah. know, incredible. Just to repeat myself again. But then after the Rio Games, you kind of came down to earth with, with a bit of a crash. And mental health in sport is a really hot topic at the moment. And I, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what happened after Rio. So after Rio, like, obviously, I succeeded my Paralympic dream. I won two gold medals I broke two Paralympic records you know it was phenomenal and then when I got home I realized that I just didn't know who I was as a person outside of the track and we focus as athletes so much on performance it's like you literally finish a race and it's like oh yeah well next year there's this there's world championships next year there's Europeans and you've got the comedy games and then you're back to world championships it's just like it's a never-ending cycle and we just don't stop to think about what we've actually achieved. And you're kind of like in this constant hamster wheel of just going around. And it was only after Rio I sort of stopped and realised like I just I just felt like I had no purpose and it was horrible. And I just yeah, it it, it was I felt numb to be honest. It, it didn't feel good at all. And thankfully I had Hattie there every day <laughs> um to keep me company and keep me going because you know, dogs are so loving. You know, they, they don't know whether you've had a good day or a bad day. They just love you regardless, don't they? So she definitely pulled me through that, that really difficult time. Because I want to go back to that point I just mentioned before, because it's, it's something you come back to in the book is, is about when you lose a sense, you sort of make up for it by your other senses sort of working overtime. And you say that confidence becomes like a sixth sense. And, and confidence is a bit of a superpower, really, isn't it? So I wondered, how did you regain that superpower, as it were? I feel like my mental health issues have sort of scarred me a little bit. My personality has changed me. But for me, I just used to try and put my confidence coat on. It was like a bit of a facade, a bit of a jacket that I put on and I could take off. 
you know, when I was feeling low. And even now, like, you know, sometimes I get obviously get nervous doing different things. I just pretend that I feel confident and I sort of just crack on. It's definitely a skill that you you learn over time. And it took me many, many years of being embarrassed at silly situations and having to challenge myself in different ways to sort of get over that awkwardness at times and yeah just put on your confidence coat and and get on with your day when you say it it scarred you what what do you mean by that I was definitely prior to Rio I was I was a really confident person probably borderline arrogant I'm not gonna lie (laughs) (laughs) you've won five Olympic medals so fair play to you at least you got the goods to back it up Libby I was yeah very very confident very self-assured very assertive and you know, after struggling with my mental health, I've, I've really became incredibly passive and to the point where it kind of looked like I wasn't really interested in anything, which, you know, was not the case. And it and it's taken me a really long time to sort of get like those glimpses of myself back. And I'm still not 100% the person I was. I'm not as outgoing or as bubbly as was. It's definitely dampened those parts of me a bit more. But I think it's also part of like developing and growing as well, you know, of just have a bit more understanding for other people and, and what they might be going through. I struggled when, when I was going through my mental health issues. I really struggled to explain to people why I was feeling the way I was feeling because, you know, they were like, you, you're a double Paralympic gold medalist, like you should be happy. And I then felt guilty for feeling the way that I felt. It's the point that everyone's always at pains to make, isn't it? That mental health problems can affect anyone. You know, no one is immune to them. I view myself as a very mentally strong person. I I never thought anything like this would ever happen to me. I never thought I'd ever have mental health issues just because in sport I am very mentally strong. And after Rio, when I started to really struggle with myself, it, it literally came from nowhere. It really, it took me by surprise, probably as much as it took other people by surprise, because it just wasn't wasn't expected, and there was no sort of inkling that I would have a mental health issue. So it, it can happen to anybody, and it, mm. it doesn't discriminate against anyone. That's mm. why I wanted to share my story, just so people, you know, know that it's okay to feel that way, and a lot of people that you don't expect to feel that way do. It's a very interesting book, but it's also a very funny book. It's very warm. Some of the stories you tell about um, the various mishaps that you, you got into uh, <laughs> before, before um, you know, finding Hattie are hilarious, frankly. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Hattie and also about guide dogs in general? Because there, there's some stuff in the book that I did not know about a lack of guide dogs can you tell me a little bit more about that especially at the moment with covid happening a lot of guide dogs that were due to go to be partnered with people have ended up not being able to and then the breeding program had to stop so at the moment there is a real real shortage of guide dogs and not only that they're you know they are really difficult to train and i've got friends that live in london that are you know, still waiting for guide dogs like two years later because they need one that can go on the escalators mm. to go into the tube stations and things. So the requirements become quite specific for people's needs. So there's definitely a lack of guide dogs at the moment and hopefully that program's, you know, going to be reboot. Well, it's already started to be rebooted, but hopefully they'll be able to get more dogs out sooner to be partnered with people because otherwise it's, it, kind of seems just like a little bit of a waste unfortunately but guide dogs are, are such a phenomenal charity there's so many volunteers that work for them so 
you've got the uh, puppy walkers or they're now called puppy raisers you know they're the ones that have them you know do the really difficult stuff with them they have them for about three months old and they have them for a whole year and they do all their basic training with them and send them off to basically puppy puppy school and um, then they have to give them up again after after having them for a year for them to go to their advanced training so those guys are just phenomenal that they they can do that i think i'd struggle to give up a puppy after i've had him <laughs> for a year my uh, puppy raiser had hattie um her name's zoe I, I still speak to her now and hattie was her first ever puppy guide dog puppy so i try and keep her updated at, you know anything that's going on but it's for people like her obviously i wouldn't have hattie if she hadn't been able to do that for me so no so it's a great charity but you're right there's so many other things that people don't know about guide dogs so it like they are <laughs> they're very intelligent but you can have quite specific requirements about where they go to the toilet things whether it's on grass or concrete yeah I, I was quite surprised <laughs> yeah i know i mean even for me like i was really shocked like how in it like in depth it goes obviously not all guide dogs like children either so you have to specify that that they don't mind children for me before i had my son i went into a lot of schools and did school visits so i needed a guide dog that didn't mind children um also i'm at a track and in the gym so there's a lot of loud noises so you know i needed a dog that would quite happily uh, sit there and not mind big banging going on and that kind of thing so you know not all guide dogs are the same and obviously everybody's needs are different as well so you know they've got like different walking speeds they match your dog to your personality so for example my partner Dan he's got a guide dog and he had to go with Hattie before he applied for his and Hattie needs a little bit of encouragement shall we say at times <laughs> but he doesn't really have the patience for that so that would be a really bad match it is quite in-depth it's it's not just a straightforward match of all oh, there's a dog that's available and off you go sort of thing but Hattie is such an incredible dog I mean I've had her now over seven years and I've, obviously I've just got back from Tokyo and she's so happy to see me and it, it was really nice because I've really missed her but she's obviously getting a bit older now she's a bit slower but it doesn't stop her from, you know, running around after Edward when he's got food in his hand. Because <laughs> she does look, love a bit of toast, I'm not going to lie. There's <laughs> crumbs. What has having Hattie meant to you, apart from not getting in strangers' cars anymore? <laughs> I genuinely thought having a guide dog would make me really disabled. And I thought of it in a really negative way because I just felt like I didn't need one I thought I was very independent I just carried on with my day I refused to most of the time use a white stick because I hate them um they made me feel really vulnerable so I was like oh just having a guide dog's like going I'm blind and then when I met Hattie and I started using her in my training I realized how much better she made me feel and I just previously I used to have to explain myself so well excuse me I'm registered blind you know I I need help with this whereas as soon as people see Hattie there's just an instantaneous barrier that's been broken down because the majority of people in Britain are dog lovers so you know they automatically want to ask me about her and it just sort of alleviates you know the awkwardness from them but then also me having to explain myself and it's even in even in something as small as going into a shop and not feeling like you have to go and try and find a member of staff to ask for help it just takes all those pressures away and that anxiety and you know I felt like I was like a reasonably confident walker before but just having Hattie next to me just makes me feel so much better because 
I don't have to worry about apologising to people if I knock them or if I walk into a bin or something. You know, like Hattie gets me out of the way. So she's, you know, she's there for me um, in so many other ways, just other than just physically getting me from, uh, you know, my house to a, a different destination. So you said that you have retired now from your Paralympic career. So what's next for you now? I've felt like I wanted to retire for quite a long time now. Um, I would have retired last year if the Paralympics had gone ahead. So for me, this extra year is giving me a bit more time to think about what I kind of want to do. I'm going to look at transferring sports and potentially doing a bit of cycling mm-hmm. in the velodrome. I've got some teammates over there that are desperate for me to come over. <laughs> um, but <laughs> but um, I really, I'd like to go into sort of into performance sport and programme management and that kind of thing. Um, I really like supporting my fellow teammates and athletes um, in their journeys to succeed. And I'd like to carry on doing that, to be honest. You know, we hear a lot about declining, not not just the activity of, of disabled people, of everyone, really, over the last sort of 18 months with lockdown and all the stuff that's been going on, but but particularly in terms of disability sport and also feel there's been quite a lot in the news about declining interest I guess in Paralympic sport since 2012 which is seen as like a real kind of breakthrough moment I just wondered mm-hmm. if you could tell me quickly what you think the state of Paralympic sport is in the UK at the moment you know it's really interesting because in so many ways this Paralympic sport has moved forward the athletes have moved forward you know there's more people from other countries just even the participation from other countries is just incredible we've seen smaller countries that never had athletes compete before have all of a sudden got Paralympic medalists and it that is absolutely amazing and I do think that is down to the exposure from 2012 but since then basically like the governing bodies haven't actually move forward especially in the UK like I feel like they've sort of gone to a bit of a standstill you know we're not put on television often enough we don't integrate some of the events with some of the able-bodied events and it sort of falls from the forefront of people's minds when they don't see it and for me for the legacy to continue on disability needs to be normalized you know there's millions of disabled people in the UK and yet we hardly see them on television and it's it's not just in sport but in all areas of television it's really uncommon and I think it's it's a society that like sort of needs to change and I have my own sort of set of fans from watching me at the Paralympics but you know they don't really know what to do for the rest of the time because there's no mm-hmm. really publicity I mean not even just like with the Paralympics I think going into like leisure centres and things like that like the communication of people that work like on the desk for example because I, I actually did some research into this a few years ago what will put a disabled person off going to the gym is when they go to the local leisure centre and ask what activities they've got on or you know what classes and then the person on the desk is just like oh well, we don't do anything for disabled people mm. or oh, we don't have anything that you can participate in or, or we're not able to provide a member of staff that can take you around the gym and it's at the front desk of leisure centres and sports centres that puts people off instantaneously if you have a negative experience at your local sports centre who really should be equipped to support you or at least have the knowledge to point you in the right direction you know you're not going to go back are you it's a big it's a big old beast uh, there's mm. not really one solution I think it's going to take a lot of little changes to to make a bigger difference. My life with Hattie, six years with a dog who does everything, 
is available from the 30th of September and at, I presume, all good bookstores and online. Where can we find you on social media, Libby, if we want to follow what you're up to? The best way to find me on social media is on Instagram, which is what I use most, and it's just at dot Libby Clegg. Libby, thank you so much for chatting to me. Thank you. Thanks very much. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mickey, what film that belies your decision that old films aren't the best films did you make us watch this week? Oh, I don't know that you're allowed to say that at the top, but we'll get there. Because this week we watched a film that for many critics and fans lays claim to the biggest talk. Yep, we watched the film Citizen Kane, Orson Welles' debut feature film, which at just 25 years old, he produced, directed, starred in and co-wrote with Herman J. Mankovich. Although, wasn't there quite the palaver about that last bit? Yes, there was. And you can watch David Finch's 2020 Oscar winner, Mank, if you want to know more about that, and indeed about the fascinating life of Mankovich himself, because quite frankly, there's too much to get through here. Mm-hmm. Released in the US on September the 5th, 1941, Citizen Kane has long been acclaimed as a work of towering genius and is often cited as, subjectivity be damned, the greatest movie of all time. That means that Citizen Kane has been endlessly dissected by critics and there exist reams of insights, outsights, shaking all about sights into Wells <laughs> and his masterpiece. And so... On its 80th birthday, I can only imagine how excited people are for me, a woman who recently in this very section of this very podcast outed herself as a Philistine who doesn't really like old films, to share my thoughts on a cinematic milestone. Let's start with a few facts. Citizen Kane tops the American Film Institute's 100 Greatest American Movies of All Time, although in fairness, the last time this was tallied was before the release of Paddington 2. Nominated for Academy Awards in nine categories, Citizen Kane won an Academy Award for Best Writing, brackets original screenplay, for Mankovich and Wells, and garnered, indeed it still garners, huge plaudits for Greg Toland's innovative cinematography, Robert Wise's editing, and the film's precedent-setting narrative structure. It's worth noting that this is also the first outing for iconic film composer Bernard Herrmann, whose work we all hated in Taxi Driver. (laughs) Until earlier this year, Citizen Kane enjoyed a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, but due to the addition of a negative review from 1941 at some point between February and April this year, it's now down to 99%, the same as Paddington 2. (gasps) However, upon initial release, Citizen Kane did not fare well at the box office, and it didn't even recoup its $839,727 costs. I love how specific that is. In Mm -hmm. fact, the film just sort of faded from view until a re-release in 1956. I'm going to start with a fun fact question. Did you spot the dinosaurs? No. No, I don't think I did. In the scene in which Kane and his entourage visit the beach, the large birds flying in the background are actually a previously created shot of pterodactyls from either King Kong or Son of Kong, Mm. both from 1933. Next, a staggering, mate, what about your guts fact? Wells would drink more than 30 cups of coffee a day during pre-production and gave himself, surprise, surprise, caffeine poisoning. After that, he changed to tea and he drank so much his skin changed colour. Just a little bit. I don't think that's possible because if it was, it'd have happened to me, wouldn't it? That's why we don't post regular pictures of you anymore because you're a deep (laughs) mahogany. (laughs) 
A pop culture fact. The Simpsons love Citizen Kane and has parodied it many times, usually through the character of Mr. Burns. In fact, mm. there is even an episode simply called Rosebud. Yes. Finally, a fa- Sorry, yeah, I've seen yeah, it. There we I go. Think, That's yeah, delayed, go. overjoyed from then there. Finally, a fact for Hannah. When asked to name his cinematic influences, Wells once gave the following answer. The Old Masters, by who I mean John Ford, John Ford and John Ford. Clever bloke, awesome Wells. And so to the story. A newspaper man chases the meaning behind an old man's last words. Rosebud, via interviews with the departed's former friends, ex-lovers and embittered associates, allowing a series of non-linear flashbacks to create a jigsaw narrative of the life of Charles Foster Kane. Ultimately, it's a story tale of a man who values riches and power over all else, squanders his life and eventually dies alone in his mansion. Now, Charles Foster Kane, our eponymous tycoon played by Wells, is a thinly veiled satire of numerous real-life American business magnates. Indeed, William Randolph Hearst attempted a blackmail plot to stop Wells from making the movie and when that failed, tried ruining the director's life and reputation before the movie was even released. I'm going to be honest with you, that's it. That's as much of the plot as I'm going to give you. Can I ask you a question while we're on William Randolph Hearst? Okay. Do you know who William Randolph Hearst's dad is? Mr. Hearst. Is it Mr. Hearst? (laughs) More specifically, this is a question mostly to Mickey rather than to Jen. It's George fucking Hearst. Is it? Mm. Oh, so he had a, some sort of cunt to follow after. <laughs> Just like, oh, I want to be like my dad. He's an arsehole. Which is why I think that it's pretty clear that it's her- the Hursts they're talking about because his money comes from gold mining, which oh. is, of course, where George Hurst's money came from. That is an excellent fact. Thank you very much, Hannah Dunleavy. You're welcome. As with so many things in life, it was The Sopranos that first led me to Citizen Kane. In season five, episode two, Carmela starts a film club for the other wives and they begin with number one on the AFI's list, Citizen Kane. Adriana's glorious, so it was a sled, huh? He should have told somebody, meant that the mystery of Rosebud was solved before I went in. Or was it? But before we get to that, Jen, Hannah, I would like to know, when was the first time you saw Citizen Kane? Oh, the first and only time I had previously seen Citizen Kane was, I think, when I was at university. Now, I can't remember if I had to watch it as part of my film and history course or if I elected to watch it because everyone said it was in like the top ten films of all time, but I think it was about that time. The, the, the top one films of all time. <laughs> uh, Hannah? Yeah, I watched it when I was about 19. Um, oh, you precocious <laughs> scamp. Because I had read a thing about Orson Welles and I thought he was seemed really interesting. Mm. And I do, still do think he had a really interesting life. In fact, I read a couple of books about him. Uh, yeah, but I, to me, the appeal was that he was so ridiculously young. And when you're 19 and, you know, everything seems so far away. And of course, you did write, star, produce and direct the number one film of all time. I mean, yeah, I obviously went on to achieve my own special thing. Yeah. (laughs) He looks considerably older. In fact, they actually made him look younger. There's obviously a lot of special effects and makeup to make him look Mm. older as Charles Foster Kane goes through different ages because it's not linear. But they also use makeup to make him look younger and they used fish skin to make his skin look tighter and juicier. And it also meant that, obviously, Orson Welles was really paranoid about his looks and it's because he knew 
he could never look as good as he did in Citizen Kane because it wasn't actually him, but he kept trying to do that anyway. Did you like it, I think? And I'm still asking specifically now about the first time you saw it. No, I hated it. I thought it was really, really, really boring and I didn't care. <laughs> I mean, okay. Hannah? Yeah, I loved it. Um, and I still do. Is if you strip everything away about what's important about it, what was groundbreaking about it, what's really impressive about it, all of that stuff. I think the bit because it does leap around in genres, but the bit where it is a good old-fashioned and a mean old-fashioned battle of the sexes, which is between him and his wife and newspaper caper, when they first start the paper, I think is actually brilliant and genuinely really funny. So that bit I really like. But I love that stuff. I love Hepburn and Cary Grant and the sort of the speedy... I mean, as you know, I love the Philadelphia story, all that sort of quick banter. I think it's terrific. And, And that section of it is the best section and it's so good that breakfast montage is incredible i mean obviously it could have done with a bit of phil collins to soundtrack it but apart (laughs) from that it's a really impressive montage that they get 16 years and just narrow it down to five breakfasts and you get the whole vibe of that marriage it's Mm. so so clever so i would say i started off very much as jen the first time i saw it i hated it i thought it was really boring i didn't really understand it But I feel like redemption might be for me and my Philistine status because I really enjoyed it this time around, actually. I had a lovely time. It wouldn't be my greatest film of all time, but I could see its merit. And obviously it, it came before so many things that have copied it and took stuff from films that I do really like that are old, like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari as well. And I really mm. like that kind of German expressionist sort of stuff as well. So no, I actually had a much nicer time than I thought I had set up for myself. It is one of those films, it's a bit like, for example, that I don't really like the Beatles, don't at me. Um, Whenever you say I don't really like the Beatles and I do really like Citizen Kane, people assume that both of those aren't your genuine opinion. They're in some way... um, Supposed to make you look clever, an affectation. Well, either to make you look clever or to make you look contrary, a bit like people say. Because it is actually true that most people haven't read Ulysses despite the fact that it, it constantly tops best book charts. Know, it's, the it's... best book charts are always like the top 100 books and you're like, oh, well, most of those you have to read at school if you're going to have read yeah. them anywhere. I didn't find it as dull as I found it the first time I watched it. I wouldn't say oh, I wouldn't say I loved it. I could see more value in it this time around. I think I understood it better and I can appreciate more why it was so groundbreaking in terms of like the narrative structure and all of that kind of thing. So, like, I get it, but I just, it's still not, I don't really like that style. I don't, I do, I do find, like, you know, the style of acting in older films to be, like, harder to watch. It's not really, I don't really enjoy it that much. And it was very much a style. That was the set style of how people acted on film. And obviously Orson Welles had come from theatre and radio as well. So it is that very clear enunciation, not necessarily very naturalistic. But I would say there are some quite naturalistic bits Mm. in it. Like I think Hannah named them, the caper bit. They're fun. And also that breakfast montage, which is brilliant. And when he first meets Susan Alexander, their sort of rapport is really nice. And I think quite naturalistic for the time, very much for the time. What's not naturalistic, but I also have to say as something that I find really enjoyable is when the reporter goes to visit Jebediah in the old people's home. He's called Jedediah, which is Jedediah, Jedediah, Jedediah Leyland. In the old people's home because he's just such rambunctious fun. 
My note says one of my favourite bits was old Jedediah Leyland, played by Joseph Cotton, because he is so incredibly Ron Burgundy. <laughs> I'm here for it. And he's like, oh, I, I know Kane. I think he reminds me of an old, old wooden ship. He just says something ridiculous. And he goes, of course I don't. <laughs> you what about you mental old man? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's really funny. But you say that because I think when you watch it, it's just one of those films that you watch it and you can just see thousands of other things in it, thousands of other things that remind you of performances. Like at the end when all the old boxes are all stacked up and it, it has a real Raiders of the Lost Ark feel about it. This mm, this yeah. hidden treasure among this just mass of junk. Definitely. I wanted to talk, obviously, because we are standard issue, about the women in Citizen Kane. It's interesting that Emily is quite a big part of it. Obviously, that breakfast montage that I've mentioned, I can't remember what the word breakfast means anymore. I've said it so often. But his first wife, Emily and son, die in a car crash. And that is mentioned in the opening newsreel and then never mentioned again in the film. So if you miss that detail, Mm. you don't really realise how much he's lost. Yeah. Mm. What I will say in Susan's defence is she can sing a shitload better than I can. Right? They're so mean to her. Yeah. I also think that is like, and obviously I'm not belittling the the abuse that a lot of women have to endure or do endure, but being forced to perform opera against your will, that is some nasty <laughs> shit. Yeah. It's quite specific, isn't it? It's is very it? specific. <laughs> Although it's weird that his mum in 18... What is it? 1871 or something? It's right. You could tell it's right after the uh, the Civil War because the the kids sing in a union song. I say the kid Charles is singing a union song. She has all the power in that scene. All of the power. The mother. The mm. dad gets no choice whatsoever. It's all down to the mum, which yeah, is interesting. That is true. I think. Mm. I would say how genuine that would be in 1871. That probably seems unlikely, but given that this was written in 1941 and they're a lot closer to that time than. They are to us, if that makes sense. Yeah. Maybe it was. I don't know. And I guess the other big question, and it's so hard to think of questions about Citizen Kane that haven't like, oh, look, there's six books about this question. So, you know, quite a lot of pressure on you two. But how do you feel about Charles Foster Kane? Do you have any sympathy for him? Not much. He's a fairly unpleasant individual. Probably have more sympathy for him than that in that it is a story of a decline, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely, and all of that. For example, and I wanted to make this point, so I'm going to mash them up both into one point, is that what's so timeless about this is that its current equivalent is brilliant and its current modern equivalent is succession. Yeah. Yeah. And especially in the way that Succession says it's not really about Murdoch, but everybody thinks it is about Murdoch in the same way that Kane wasn't supposed to be Hearst, but everybody thinks it is, is that I have a lot more sympathy for Charles Foster Kane than I do for Logan Roy. Oh, that's interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. I think that there's, hmm. there is a little bit of sympathy there. He's not likeable, but a lot of what happens to start with isn't of his own making at all and then yeah exactly what hannah said about power and absolute power but he yeah he's not nice he's not he's no not he's, nice he's not man. nice but i think if you look for example at his son his sin against his son is neglect whereas logan roy's sin against his son is abuse yes hmm. yeah 
I do want that to go down in the annals of film history, though. Mickey Noonan, standard issue. Mm, Charles Foster Kay. It's not very nice, is he? Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is women can't be critics. <laughs> I'm going to skip now to a big question, I guess, because it does still top a lot of lists. Do you think Citizen Kane is rated or dated? I mean, it's obviously dated because it's like, you know, a black and white film and whatever. But like, so it is sort of, it, it can't kind of not be dated in on a superficial level, Agreed, if yeah. you see what I mean. But I don't think it's dated. I think it's still like is, you know, it's it's still an important film. It's still whatever. I just don't like it very much. Fair enough. Hannah? Yeah. Given what I just said about Succession, you know, and given that... The story of how, well, to repeat myself, power corrupts, given that that is pretty timeless, I can't see how it isn't rated, to be honest. It doesn't feel dated, because if it was dated, we wouldn't see that stuff in it now. We'd be like, oh, look at this antique piece about Mm. what used to happen when men got too much power. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's annoying that it does feel that that theme is going to be timeless, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) The time in memoriam and an ever forward. Yeah, rated Maybe one day women can be cunts in things as well, and then we'll we can talk but about dream, Jen. Well. I think women are cunts in things. <laughs> I'm, I agree with you, but I've meant you know in terms of. And it go on to be uh, a massively lauded film. Well, yes, quite yeah, exactly. Yeah. That. What are we? Well, what are you two watching next week? Because I am having some jollies. Right. Well, Jen and I are having some jollies of our own because. <laughs> We are going to be watching, in a couple of weeks, Bedknobs and Broomsticks is 50. So Jen told me she'd never watched it. So I'm thinking, what are you, Jen, 38? I'm 39 when you listen to this on Wednesday. Okay, I think 39 is the perfect age to get into a children's (laughs) classic. Or is it still a children's classic? I don't know. Let's find out. (laughs) (laughs) Standard issue for all women.